Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections. People usually remember William Clark as the young Army captain who accompanied Meriwether Lewis and the Corps of Discovery from 1804 to 1806 on the expedition through the Louisiana Purchase. But after that expedition, he settled in St. Louis and served as the U.S. Superintendent of Indian Affairs until his death in 1838. From 1813 to 1820, he also served as the Territorial Governor of Missouri. As superintendent, he was a major figure in the United States' westward expansion because he helped oversee the implementation of the U.S. government's policy of forcibly removing Indian tribes from their lands east of the Mississippi. Tribes were moved west to open land up for white settlers. They were resettled on reservations on the Great Plains with a climate and resources different from their homelands. Before statehood, Kansas was part of what was then supposed to be the permanent Indian Territory. Clark's correspondence with other officials who were part of the Indian removal process include this letter from the Illinois fur trader and politician Pierre Menard. Kaskaskia, 8th October, 1830. Dear Sir, enclosed you have, agreeably to your request, an estimate of the probable expense attending the emigrating Shawnees and Seneca from the state of Ohio and the Miamis from Indiana for the year 1831. If the information I lately received by the last party of emigrating Senecas is correct, the numbers stated in the estimate will not fall short. The calculation is made from the supposition that, as usual, there will remain few days to rest, and by detention for crossing the Mississippi, and from thence to the Kansas River, at $7.50 for each person, supposing one horse for each person. The merchandise to be given is uncertain, depends entirely upon the season in which they move. Although there is no obligation to clothe them, yet it is impossible to refuse clothing to many women and children suffering in cold weather. Nothing is said about lost horses in their travels, but the past has proven that, in their journey, when emigrating, a number of horses have been stolen by our citizens, and more especially when they are crossing the Mississippi. Our bad men steal them, and many others hide them in order to get a reward for bringing back what they have unlawfully taken. When the horses are stolen, and no hopes of getting them, then the Indians demand other horses in lieu of those stolen from them, and say if our white brethren had not compelled us to move from our native land, our horses would not have been stolen, and we cannot travel with our wives and small children without horses. The immigration of the Delawares in 1820, 21, and 22 and that of the Shawnees in 27, has sufficiently proved that they cannot move without losing horses. With respect and consideration, your obedient servant, Pierre Menard. Besides recounting how the Indians were forced prematurely from their land by the encroaching white settlers, Clark's correspondence with the government agent appointed to head the Shawnee and Delaware Agency reveals a continuing lack of the most basic supplies necessary to help the tribes survive in their new home, and the slowness of the U.S. government to fulfill its treaty obligations. 2nd April, 1831. General William Clark, Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Sir, I have furnished the Delawares with as much provisions only as was actually needful to keep them from suffering which I had to transport to them. When they came last fall, their horses were poor, owing to the very extreme hardness of the winter. The Indians generally, as well as the Delawares, lost most all their horses. They have none fit for service, 
A great many of the Indians are in a suffering condition owing chiefly to the unusual hardness of the winter. I believe it to be my duty to have some provisions wagoned to them, particularly to the Delawares. Chief Anderson and his councilmen says that it was understood last fall on White River that the supplementary article to their treaty was ratified, that immediately the white people moved in among them and took possession of their farms, commenced seeding their fields and selling whiskey to his people so that he was compelled to move. I have also furnished that half of the Wiz that have been in the Mississippi swamps for some time past with two wagon loads of corn and some pork. They came and joined their nation on their land this spring in a starving condition. Their friends were unable to help them, many of whom, I was informed by the trader, divided their corn with their horses as long as they had a year. They are now trying to work, but their diet is so weak they are not able to do much. I think the past winter will learn the Indians in future to be more provident. They stand much in need of provisions. I would like to receive some instructions from you on the subject of furnishing them. Respectfully, your most obedient servant, Richard W. Cummins, Indian Agent. At one time, as many as 4,000 Indians lived in the Sac and Fox village of Sacanook, located between the Rock and Mississippi Rivers in Illinois. Some of the Sac and Fox tribe disputed the validity of the Treaty of 1804 that ceded all their lands east of the Mississippi to the United States for an annuity of $1,000 per year. A group led by Black Hawk joined the British to fight against the United States in the War of 1812 in hopes of holding on to their land. After the war, Black Hawk insisted that he did not knowingly reaffirm the validity of the 1804 treaty when he signed a later treaty on May 13, 1816 in St. Louis. William Clark signed the 1816 treaty on behalf of the U.S. government. This letter from Clark to John H. Eaton discusses the Sac and Fox dispute. Superintendency Indian Affairs, St. Louis, May 20, 1829. Sir, I take the liberty of enclosing a copy of a petition from a number of settlers on public lands to the government of Illinois, which has been referred to me. The facts are, the Sacs and Foxes tribes who reside on Rock River and in different villages east of the Mississippi did on the 3rd of November 1804 and confirmed the said session on 13th May 1816, cede to the United States all the lands east of the Mississippi. Since that time, nearly all the Foxes and part of the Sacs have moved to the west of the Mississippi. Yet a part of the principal men and a large portion of the Sac tribe remain at their old village on Rock River. They have been repeatedly advised to move west of the Mississippi and apprised of the consequences of remaining on the lands which they have ceded. Those people appear strongly impressed with the opinion that they have been defrauded of an immensely valuable country by the Treaty of 1804, held with a few of their tribe, for which they receive so small an annuity as to be of little service to them, and their apprehensions of their being forced from their old villages and fields produces unfriendly feelings, particularly among those who are under British influence. The white settlements are now extended to the edge of their fields, and it may be expected that difficulties will arise between them. To obviate this, as well as to quiet their claim to any part of the country south of the Wisconsin, which they may have or hold in common with other tribes, I beg leave to recommend that those Sac and Fox tribes be embraced in the instructions to the commissioners who have been authorized to hold a treaty with the Winnebagos, Potawatomis, Ottawa's, and Chippewa's for the purpose of quitting the claim 
and fixing a term for them to move from the ceded lands. I have the honor to be, with high respects, your obedient servant, William Clark. Black Hawk's band was forced to move west in 1831. In April 1832, encouraged by the possibility of support from the British and other Indians who followed the Winnebago prophet White Cloud, they returned to Illinois. Over the next four months, the band was decimated by the militia and the U.S. Army forces led by General Atkinson and a series of bloody battles as they tried to flee back across the Mississippi. What came to be called Black Hawk's War was a rare instance of armed resistance to the removal of Indian tribes east of the Mississippi. Clark dispatched this apprehensive letter to Lewis Cass, the U.S. Secretary of War, on May 1, 1832. Superintendency, Indian Affairs, St. Louis, May 1, 1832. Sir, by letters received this evening from the Indian agent at Rock Island, I am informed that the hostile Indians of Black Hawk's party are continuing their course up Rock River, being now about 30 miles above the Prophet's village. Their number is estimated at 600. I think it not improbable that their intention is to join their friends in Canada and that they will make an attempt upon the settlements before they leave us. As General Atkinson is, however, aware of their designs, his vigilance will no doubt prevent the meditated blow. He is about to take a position below them, there to await the arrival of the mounted men under Governor Reynolds. William Clark. By far, most of the thousands of people who died because of the U.S. policy of Indian removal were killed by disease, starvation, and exposure. The most notorious example being the forced removal of the Cherokee in 1838. Eventually, most of the tribes who were originally moved to the Kansas region were again relocated to land in Indian territory, which later became part of the state of Oklahoma. The government also encouraged many tribes to forfeit their tribal status and accept individual allotments of land instead. At one time, there were 19 tribal reservations in Kansas. Today, there are four. The Kickapoo Nation, the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation, and the Sac and Fox Nation of Missouri. This has been a Kansas Memory, a Kansas Historical Society podcast. The documents used in this podcast are part of Kansas Memory, a virtual repository of primary sources from the Historical Society collections. The URL for the website is www.kansasmemory.org. Thank you.